You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to a new episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. I am your host, Tony Lopes. Our guest today is the co-founder and CEO of Bringing Hope Home, which helps families going through the cancer battle with financial assistance and other resources. In its first year, 2008, Bringing Hope Home helped approximately 20 Philadelphia area families. As of 2019, Bringing Hope Home will have helped more than 6,000 families. Bringing Hope Home is also a major contributor to the Hope Lodge at the Fox Chase Cancer Center and the DuPont Hospital for Children in Wilmington. You can visit their website, find out ways to help, or make a donation at www.bringinghopehome.org. Now, without further ado, here are the self-made strategies of Paul Eisenberg. Paul, thank you so much for being here with us today. We really appreciate you joining us remotely Uh, And people can check this out on YouTube as well. We'll post this on our channel. So if they'd want to watch our conversation rather than just listen along, they can do that as well. So you are the CEO and one of the co-founders of Bringing Hope Home, an organization that brings hope to families who are undergoing a cancer journey, for lack of a better term. Uh, Is that how you would shape it, more or less? And tell us how you started the organization. So I'm really excited to be here with you, Tony. Thanks for having me. Um, Bringing Hope Home provides emotional and financial support to local families with cancer. And we call that unexpected amazingness. So we provide unexpected amazingness to these families um, by paying household necessity bills, by uh, helping them with a particular problem that they might have, a construction project, a needed job, get a kid into school, whatever that is, really letting them know they're not alone. And we try to treat them like they're a family to us because we don't help patients, we help families. And I started this in 08 with my good friend, Tim Sherry. Uh, The main impetus for me was I had lost my uh, father at a young age, he was 57. And then I lost my first wife, Nicole, at 38 to a long battle with Hodgkin's disease. And the one thing that we realized was, even though it was really hard, we had a lot of good people and a lot of great support. And we were shocked at how many people didn't have that. And Nicole really couldn't accept that people won't have that. So she made us do it. So that's why we're here. Very cool. And I'm so sorry for your loss. That was, uh, I'm sure, a very traumatic experience. I was reading this on your, on Bringing Hope home.org on your website. Uh, That story is on there. Your wife, Nicole, at the time, your first Mm -hmm. wife, Nicole, was pregnant with your second child, right? And Correct. went to with the doctor, Gabby. didn't feel well. And that's when she found out that yep. she unfortunately had uh, stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma and yep. unfortunately uh, succumbed to the to the disease. Uh, horrible yep. story. So beyond that, w- bring us up to speed now. 2008, we started a, an event called the Great Guy Dinner in 01 that we ran for eight years with another charity and then we became our own charity. So yeah, we started uh, as an organization in 08 year one, we raised 125 grand and helped 10 families. And we do that by, we actually pay the bill. We don't give the money to the family. We actually get the bills. Uh, Social workers nominate the family, then we get the bills. So yeah, year one, 10 families, $125,000 raised year. This past year, 
we we helped 800 families and raised two point some million dollars, and we have now crossed over 6,400 local families that we've helped since we started. That's amazing. Now, how do you select the families that you help? I know you said it's kind of guided by the social workers, so you yep. have relationships on that end, and they help you to determine the families most in need. Yeah. So what we do is we we don't have a lot of requirements to to get assistance from us. You have to be in our area local, which is the greater Philadelphia area, surrounding counties, South Jersey, uh, Delaware, the Baltimore area, Pittsburgh, um, and then North Jersey, Southern New York, Southern Connecticut. Uh, and the you have to be in active treatment and the, the social worker deems what active treatment is. And then on the first business day of the month, we have social workers send an electronic application with all the information needed to us. Our family department reaches out, connects with the family, any type of family, any type of cancer, uh, and then get, get the bills, work through the bills, find out what else they need, let them know they're part of us. Uh, we always say that we're like a good mob. We can, once you're in, you can't get out. And you know we do a lot of events and we invite our families to events. We usually do a big Phillies day for families where we have about 600 people this year that didn't happen, but we're right. hopeful next year. But we want the families to know that they're part of a, a bigger community that really cares for them. Yeah. And so you've been running this organization since 2008, as you've said. Yep. What have been sort of the biggest hurdles for you that you've had to overcome? Obviously, COVID-19 is a huge hurdle for any organization at this point, but especially for a nonprofit that's trying to continue to fulfill its mission, support families undergoing cancer treatment. That doesn't stop because of COVID-19, obviously. So that's a huge challenge. And we'll talk about that specifically later on in the episode. But what about other challenges that you faced that you've overcome and how did you overcome them to maintain and to sustain your organization over the course of the last 12 years? Well, I would, I would say to you that there's always a challenge, right? Um, we started in the end of 2000. We originally started in like 2008. So that was in the middle of a big recession. So probably wasn't great timing on our part. We didn't know any better. so. That's how we got through that. Um, I think some of the big hurdles that a lot of founders have is when to hire people, mm -hmm. how many people to hire, how to spend money. You know, you're so passionate about your mission and you're running as a volunteer organization. And it's, it's hard to hire people and, and put structure around the company. Uh, once we did that, uh, that is a challenge every year because every year you're hopefully growing and you're changing. So anytime you have an organization, like we started as uh, four people sitting around a table in a Panera Bread, a cozy, writing checks out of a checkbook to families. And uh, then we've hired one person and then we got an intern and then made her an employee. And now we have seven full-time, two part-time employees. I didn't go on payroll till six years ago, seven years ago. So I wasn't an employee for a while, but you know, and then... You're always trying to figure, at least let me rephrase, we are always trying to figure out how to scale, how to grow, and what makes it really, what gets me out of bed in the morning and gets me excited is if we can scale and grow this and go from helping you know, 800, 900 families a year to helping 5,000 families a year, the impact that we would have on people that are in 
real, real need anyway, independent of any COVID or anything else, just real need. People, if you get diagnosed with cancer, you're out of pocket, even with healthcare coverage that you might have, even with having healthcare coverage, you're out of pocket, it's going to be $10,000, $20,000. And we're coming in, we help families one time around $1,000 bill payment, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's not only the bill payment that gets them over that hump, it's knowing that somebody that you've never met cares about you. Knowing that a donor somewhere, like a nice guy like Tony, threw 20 bucks at an event, and that's going to go help pay your electric bill. So the big challenge that we have every day is how to scale, how to grow, how to keep a close relationship with our families, how to make donors feel engaged. That's what we do every day. So that's probably our biggest challenge, but that's a good challenge to have. Yeah, I understand. And one of the interesting things that I picked up in what you were saying was that you started this kind of as a what the the kids today would call a side hustle, right? So you were still working yeah. as an account executive at Angle when you first started the organization yeah. in 2008. And yep. then you even were vice president of, of business development at the Haverford Trust Company for mm -hmm. several years before finally letting go and focusing on bringing hope home full time. So interesting to me that you did that. I, I think that was, in my opinion, at least a brilliant strategy because it allows you to focus on, you don't have to worry about how you yourself are being financially responsible on a personal level. And you can focus on the growth and development of the organization, like hiring other people first, uh, not taking on a salary right away and being able to to bring on assets that that benefit the organization as a whole. Did you make that decision consciously or or was that just kind of the way that it went as you were developing it? Yeah, I did not make it consciously. So your kind words about being brilliant really are <laughs> lost on me. Um, I just didn't know how to make a living doing it. Um, my I got remarried to a wonderful woman who is also a cancer survivor who, who's, who's a widow who had two kids. Now we have four kids. And, you know, I wasn't, I needed to go run the charity because that's where my passion was, but I didn't realize it. And she said, you need to go do that. And, you know, I was talking, we just had a, a conversation with a grant funder yesterday, as a matter of fact. And she goes, wow, you guys have nine people. She goes, the last time we talked, you had like half of that. I'm like, yeah, we had about, Try to add a person a year because it's there's so much to do, but um, I always wanted to be. I'll, I'll never forget. We had a. I have a a guy who I know who was on our board, and he said something to me that I'll never forget. We were two or three people on payroll, and he was writing us a big check. And he goes, "I'm really excited you're doing this." His name's Tony, and I said, "Tony, I said we're like ninety seven percent towards." This is years ago. 97% towards our mission. And he goes, I don't want to ever hear you say that again. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, Paul, if you're 97% towards mission, you're not sustainable. And I, that really just hit me and was like a light bulb went off. So, I mean, we still have a great number. We're, we're, we're rated pretty highly on Charity Navigator and uh, GuideStar. But, you know, we have a reasonable overhead. But it's true. You can't grow if you don't hire people. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the biggest 
crutches sometimes for people, especially in the nonprofit world, in the startup world, and in the creative space. I think nonprofits, startups, and artists or creatives are, are all very similar, right? They have these brilliant ideas. They want to bring them to fruition, to execute on them. And often they're kind of figuring out, figuring it out as they go, as you were saying. Um, so what's your biggest piece of advice, say, for somebody else in the nonprofit space? Because even as an attorney, sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll have a, an initial conversation with a nonprofit leader or even somebody who's trying to start a nonprofit. And often the passion is there. They have a clear vision. Um, I have not run into too many who, like yourself, were doing it on the side to start it, which I really do think is brilliant by accident or otherwise. Brilliance oh, is brilliance, right? Um, but you know, often it's that, right? It's they, they're missing and it's tough because you're under-resourced as well, especially mm -hmm. in the beginning, right? So what's your biggest piece of advice to nonprofit owners? And I would say this advice is probably going to be applicable to startup founders, but what's your biggest piece of advice to keep them afloat in the early years? Well, I would, I, I would say a couple of things. The first one is, uh, don't look at yourself as a different kind of business whether you're a nonprofit or an arts-related or a startup, you're a business. And I think that for us, we did uh, our event early on for a much larger charity, the American Cancer Society, great charity. And we were starting to raise money. We figured out how to raise money by doing a great guy dinner through them. And the one thing that we were able to do was identify what we liked that the American Cancer Society did, but we also identified gaps or things that we thought wasn't that the American Cancer Society doing anything wrong. But we said, hey, you know what? If we could get bill payment for families, because that's what I was struggling with. Nicole was a stay-at-home mom and we didn't live beyond our means and we were broke. I had a good job and we had help. I mean, there was, we had the best of a tough situation. It was still bad. So, um, what I suggest to people when they call me and say, Hey, I want to start this business or I want to start this charity. I'm like, think about what you want to do. Then go find two or three charities that do it. Go volunteer for them. And only if you really want to volunteer for them, don't go in there as a, just an information, but really go because you're connected to it. And then spend some time and identify, it might take you a year or two or three, but identify where you think your idea might be able to better serve families. Because you might go in and volunteer for an organization, say like ours, and say, you know what you need to do? You need to do X. And we're like, oh, you know what? That'd be great. Let's work on it together. We might hire you. But that's, and then really see what, what's out there because there's, there's probably too many charities out there. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of charities out there that aren't active or they're, they're, they're somebody's pet project, or they're trying to figure out how to grow or do something different, or they're older and they're not as engaged. Uh, there's, we don't need more charities. We need more good works. And I think that, well, again, that's just my opinion, right? Um, but go to work, go find another organization and connect with them. and. Like I know you're connected with today's a good day, right? Right. So 
they're a great organization. They're different than what we do. We we go back and that's how we met, right? We go back and forth and refer and talk. We're in a nonprofit roundtable together. We have we share stuff. Go find people that you can say, this is what I think I want to do. Do you know anybody who's doing this that I can connect with or has thought about and who's had the experience? But you got to do that and you got to do it. Um, we kind of started like, we started an event, we started raising money, we started an organization, we changed the name before, we changed the website before we changed the name, we did everything backwards, like everything, everything. And sometimes we've been catching up ever since because we're always like, oh, we got to redo that. But think about what you want to do, find smart people in your life, talk to them about it, get somebody with a marketing, a finance, um, a, a commercial background and put together a business plan. We had no business plan. Like we probably did everything wrong. In fact, I just wrote a book and I'll send you a copy when, we, when we're done. It's almost done. But we basically took everything we did wrong, called it out, like how to build a board. Well, this is how we screwed it up the first time. This is what we did to fix it. And this is what we're doing now. And go out and get people's expertise on screwing up and save yourself the hassle. But it's got to be something you're passionate about. It's got to be something that you genuinely get excited about because it's hard, right? Doing anything's hard. That's worth doing. So that's what I would suggest to people. Yeah, I think people in our culture, we've actually been having this discussion with a lot of the guests on the show recently. People in our culture, we're kind of stuck in this plateau of jump to the front of the line, you know, just go file your business registration. Now I'm CEO of, you know, uh, uh, donation org LLC, and now yeah. I'm going to go out and raise money. And then you'll, that approach tends to lead to a serious discussion internally with yourself a year later, I'm putting my hand out. I have this great idea. Why is nobody putting money in it? Whether it's donations yep. or, or yep. Uh, revenue or whatever it is. And I think your, your approach is, is dead on looking for mentorships, but those mentorships and those opinions should be from individuals, as you pointed out, that have been there, have mm -hmm. done it. And those who succeed fail along the way, right? Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, all the greats, they always talk about how, you know, they missed 9,000 shots. You know, it's always the failures that eventually lead to the success. So I think that's part of your, your story. Now, when you're leading this organization, you've been at it for roughly 12 years, as we said, and you're an innovator, which I love. It's the perfect mix for me is when you find a nonprofit leader that's appropriately focused on innovation and you have a business mindset, which I think helps to make you a really solid nonprofit leader. So how do you, what's your litmus test for, okay, we're thinking about doing this innovative thing, whether it's a marketing thing or a new uh, service offering to benefit your, your mission. How do you decide what's your litmus test for picking and choosing what to do and where to spend your money? It's a really good question. I think for us, again, because we've screwed up a lot, uh, I'm a, a true founder mentality, which means I've never had a bad idea and everybody stop what you're doing and let's go work on this great idea I have. Uh, so in order to keep my team employed, staying with us and not have them not kill me, <laughs> we've, we've developed, there's, there's kind of a two prong approach. The first prong is we have our corporate values. Uh, 
we also have a set of priorities. So in our, in our company, the priorities, there's three priorities. There's our families first, our donors second, and ourselves third. So if we have, anybody has an idea, how does it help our families? How does it, our benefit of our donors and how do we live with it in a positive way, get more engaged, not get exhausted? If those three things aren't represented, we can't do it. We have to have those three things. Uh, and then um, I go to my team. And, or if somebody has an idea, they come, when they come to me, if it's their idea, they come to me and, and I say, okay, how's it priorities? And then how much is it going to cost? What's the best, worst, and middle of the road scenario? And what's the downside that we're not talking about? And if you come to me and it's thought out and we do it and it doesn't raise any money or it doesn't do well, or even if it, we lose money, but it was a good idea and we thought about it and we, okay, but it's got to fit into our priorities. Right. And I think for us, when we kind of hit, we're, so we're going to be like a $2 million organization again this year, where number was going to be 2.3. We're not going to raise 2.3 million, but we might raise more net, which is interesting than mm -hmm. we did last year. Mm -hmm. But when you get to a certain size, you have to be really careful about doing too much new stuff. You got to stay. We do a strategic plan every three years and we try to keep our strategic uh, goals um, manageable. So three to five that make a big impact on the business. And if you start running around and I'm talking to myself now and I give my team permission to tell me no. So they're like, yeah, that's a great idea, but you got me doing these seven other things. And it's, which do you want me to stop doing over here to do this? I'm like, well, none of them just do eight. They're like, no, can't do that. <laughs> so that's what I would tell people is what are your, you have corporate values, which you have to have. You have corporate priorities, which I think you also have to have. And then you live within that plan and give your team, whether you're the founder or the boss or anybody, it's okay for people to tell you no. And sometimes no, isn't no ever it's just not right now. Like podcasts, we're talking to you about doing a podcast. Wouldn't have thought about that two years ago. Thought about it about a year ago, but I didn't even know who to talk to. So you, you, you just got to prioritize what, what helps you get to your missions focused faster, you know, and, and talk about it. We have a director's meeting every week. We have a staff meeting, well, now twice a week because keep people connected, but usually every week we're at a staff meeting. And as a, as you know, my job is to not only lead the organization, but be there to listen to my team because I, my goal is to be the dumbest person at my company. So everybody who I work with is smarter than me and more talented than me. So I should listen to them. So I don't know if that answered your question. No, it does. Yeah. And I love the humble leadership approach. I think that's it. I'm not that <laughs> humble, man. <Don't, laughs> I'm not that humble. Thank You're you. You're humble though. when you need to be, apparently. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you were, you were saying, though, that you, you might net more than before, even though your, your revenue number may not quite be yep. where it used to be. Is that because of COVID-19? And I guess we can talk about COVID-19 and how it's affecting your organization now. Or is it just because you're cutting overhead more so now? What, what's, what's the reasoning behind that? Do you know? Yeah. Um, 
So when we started, uh, when COVID-19 hit, it was, we had had two events. We had a great gals brunch the Sunday, which would have been like the 7th, mm -hmm. I guess, March. And then we had a great guy dinners in Baltimore on the 12th on Thursday. Actually, the governor of Maryland shut everything down a half hour before our dinner. Wow. We still had it, but like a lot of people canceled. And we raised, we doubled what we raised. We raised about $60,000. So we shut everything down. Um, my wife and I actually got the virus. You know, it wasn't fun. Don't want it again. But it wasn't the worst thing on the, I ever had either. Okay. But so what we did was talk to the board. I have a board of directors of 12 people counting myself. And we talked about, uh, specifically with the finance and audit committee, what expenses can we cut? So we did that. We called all our vendors. We said, we just need to put a hold on it till we figure it out. And to to an organization, everybody was very supportive and open. So we did that. So we we cut the overhead. We didn't lay anybody off, which I'm very proud of. Congrats. Yeah, that's, uh, we got, that's great. Yeah. But you never know what the future holds, right? But we got the PPE money, which was a really interesting experience. We worked with uh, WSFS, who did a great job for us. Um, we used all that money appropriately. And then we took some people whose jobs were not as active. Like we have a school person who goes out to schools and raise, to raise money and schools got all shut down. Right. So we repurposed her, redirected her to help write grants. Um, we started really amping up our uh, social media reach. Uh, we called all our hospitals that we're connected with, which is over 100. Hey, we're still helping families. We put in the financial triggers, the plans. Uh, we started meeting with the Audit and Finance Committee and our controller every week. We put together a 90-day cash flow plan that, to be honest with you, I really like the 90-day cash flow plan other than the annual budget. Because I'm, as you can probably tell, 80 days. So 90 <laughs> days is a really great box for me of 12 weeks that I can be like, okay, I need to call these people. We need to do this. Uh, and our director of development and our development staff did a great job of finding COVID-19 grants. Wow. They're, you know, Philadelphia Foundation along with United Way had a, you know, COVID Philadelphia. We were able to get a grant from them. A big pharmaceutical company, Pfizer Pharmaceutical, had some COVID money that we were able to get. Some of the local community foundations. So, and the good news is, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. And my development team was doing a great job calling on these organizations anyway. So we might not have been somebody that they worked with before, but they at least knew who we were and are. So, and then... Uh, the one thing that, so we started raising more money. We, my director of events, we had a big 5k that we usually have in Seattle, which, uh, usually gets about a thousand people. And it was interesting because we got about 700, 750 people, but we raised all but $2,000, the same we raised the year before, but we had people run the 5k in 17 States which opened up another whole new perspective for me. And, and, and to be honest with you, her name's Sarah Zargal, and she was kind of pushing me to go virtual back in April. And I'm like, well, by July, right, we're going to be out. Everybody's going to want to be at the shore. It'll be great. And then she's like, no, you got to do it now. And she was right. So we expanded our reach. We raised the money, we, but we didn't have the overhead.
right? Right. So, and then we also had our great guy dinner, which is a big event for us, five to 600 people, big silent auction, big jewelry giveaway with Benari jewelry, um, uh, big program, sit down dinner, big speaker. That usually costs us between 50 and 70 grand to do. We raised 350 from it, 300, 350 from it. So it's a big event for us. And it's a great event because I, I hope you can probably tell, I love talking to people, right? I want to be out hugging. I'm a big hugger. That's all gone away right now. Right. But we did the, we had Dick Vermeil as our speaker who was phenomenal. And we did a virtual great guy dinner in May or in a, sorry, July. And we raised almost the same amount net that we had raised last year without the big overhead. So that's why I'm able to say to you, we've, we're, we're still raising money. We're still helping 30 to 40 or more families a month, but we don't have the great expense. The events are expensive. We have a golf outing coming up Tuesday after Labor Day, September 8th. It's an expensive event. Now we're, 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 technically almost, we're technically sold out, but we got a couple more foursomes to sell. But it's not going to, it's going to cost us, but we're, we could actually come in slightly above net money. So it's, and, and COVID really is the one way it impacted us that we didn't anticipate was the social worker that nominates the family to us. We still had money budgeted to help families. We were, we weren't getting the requests in. We couldn't figure out why. So we started calling the social and not me and my family department. A lot of social workers were furloughed during, you know, the spring we're starting to come back now. So we're starting to pick back up. But, you know, you don't think of those things. So we're going to increase our, we have a reserve of cash to take us for six-month operational money, which we started a couple of years ago by direction of the board. And I'm so thankful we have it. We have a line of credit at the bank. We don't want to touch it, but we have it. Um, but, you know, we're going to change the way we raise money going forward because we have to be more diverse in our fundraising. And we're gonna we're gonna have a virtual part of every possible event we can go forward to. Because of the way that things have happened with COVID nineteen, many of us have had a hard time focusing on the target and the goal, and we tend not to see all of the other tangential things, like in your case, the social workers getting furloughed, and you're waiting for more families to come in, especially with COVID-19, you would assume there would be a little bit of an uptick. So nope. you, you start to wonder, you know, wait, why is the phone not ringing? And then you, when you, when you go and seek out the information, you realize that this completely un, pseudo unrelated thing yeah. has happened and is affecting your organization. Um, and I, I think that's an important lesson for those who are listening to try to think outside of the box, right? And think about yep. these steps and, and look down the line, not just what's in front of you, but what are the other things that, what other stakeholders are potentially affecting our, our bottom line? Um, I, I'm going to ask, and if it's too personal, feel free to you say, can ask me anything. Do you, Go ahead. Do you know, uh, first of all, happy to hear that your wife and yourself have, have recovered and that, mm. you know, uh, um, you were able to, to beat COVID-19. Do you yeah. know how you caught it? And do you know what led to your recovery and to not having as bad of an experience as some other people? Do you think that you've been better able to innovate and to deal with the pandemic and struggling to pivot because you started the organization 
during another crisis in 2008, during during the initial point of the recession. And then obviously you weathered those three or four years of recessionary time period, 20, 2008 to 2012. Do you think that that kind of sharpened your skill set for dealing with something like this? Or that's a, That's an interesting question. I think I don't look at it that way. Like, I don't look at it. It's my skill set. Like, I think, I think I have to think about that. But one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, we, we work really hard on our culture and our, our values are integrity, family, accountability, fun. Those, those are the big things with us. And I think because we've, built the organ or tried to build the organization on those things that strengthens the organization from our board of directors to our volunteers and everybody who's part of us. I have a board of 12 people that are unbelievably gifted and successful and gracious, especially to bringing hope home. When this, when we've hit tough times, cause everybody has something to happen to them, right? We've called, there's people in my network that I've called and said, Hey, I got this problem. Did you ever go through that? I just had a couple breakfasts and lunch with some people talking about that right now, you know, because we're trying to figure out not just how to finish the year, but what does next year look like? And what does five years from now look like? You know, and I think that for us, we are so uh, wonderfully gifted and blessed with great donors. Uh, really none of our donors left us. Some have said, you know, I can't do another virtual event, but if you have an in-person event, we'll do that. But, and then you look at the team that you have and that you work with, how creative are they? How much do you trust them? So we hire by our values. And if that's right and we get it right, which I think we have pretty much for the most part since we started, people step up. Like my team is the kind of, and I'm, I am, I want to go back to work at the office because I miss them. I really miss them. We do Zoom calls and we're on the phone all the time together, but I miss them. I, I love my team. I love who I work with. But like I've, I've talked to, I went on vacation a couple of years ago with a buddy and his wife and our families. And every day he's at the he's at the breakfast table at 7:30 online, working, working, coming down to the beach at 10. My wife and I roll out of bed, get a little workout, come back, you know, get get donuts, get coffee, come back. Then they're talking to him, they're working. And, and about the day three or four, his wife goes, I ask you a question. I go, Yeah. How come you're not working? I'm on vacation. She goes, Well, aren't you worried? I go, No. I mean, I check in, I checked in like twice a week and I was perusing emails, but I trust my team. I know my team. I respect my team. Some ways I tell you, I, I, I think I'm the weak link and I'm slowing it down because they're so good at what they do and they take it so seriously because they know our culture is families first. They, we have to serve that family as best we can like there are. Do we do, get it right every time? No. We don't. We try. But I know that if there's a problem, they'll call me. And if there's not, they won't. And I'm okay. And I know that I'll be better for them if 
I get rest on my vacation and don't come home as a basket case. So I think that's more the reason than my innovation. I'm not, I don't look at myself as an innovator. I look at myself as a, almost like a creative pragmatist, you know, okay, this is, this is, we have to fix this. How do we fix it? And then we talk to everybody. Who do we know in our network that had this? Who do we know in our network that knows somebody? I can't tell you how many times a family's come to us. We'll help them one time financially with bill payment. But then if they call us three years from now and they're still in treatment and they'll say, you know what? My HVAC just blew up. We know a guy. Let me make a call. We'll figure, we'll figure it out. We'll do that all day long. But because of the goodness of people, we're able to do that. You know, we're more of a, it's our job. I tell my team, it's our job to make it easy for people to give. How do we make it easy for people to give to us or to buy our product or to use our service? How do, how do we meet them where they are? Like when I go out to meet with a donor, I've had donors say to me, what do you want? I'm like, I want all your money. And they kind of look at me. I'm like, well, I, I know that's not reasonable. That's what I want. <laughs> but I said, what I want to do is I want to tell you what we do. And if there's a connection, let's figure out what the, what the, what the give is. Like we have some donors, like our Salesforce development company, uh, our, our partner, uh, IGENIX, they gift all their consulting services to us. You know what a beautiful gift that is? That our Salesforce database is kept alive and growing and changing and developing that we don't have to pay $100, $200 an hour. I mean, plus they're, they're great. But that's the way they want to give. And that's beautiful. So I don't know if it's an innovation as much as it's who do we know and how can we be practical? And we really work hard on how do we help our donors? So one of the donors reached out to me the other day. He's like, Hey, I got this building problem. I need an architect. Do you know anybody? So I said, you know what? I don't off the top of my head. Texted a buddy in the real estate business. He got back to me with a guy. I said, can we use your name? He's like, yeah, send it to my guy. He's good. That's important to me. I'll, I'll stop what I'm doing for that. So I think, you know, how do you bring value to your situation? How do you bring value to other people's situation? How can you create value together for what you want, which is important to you? Sorry, I went on a little bit long on that. No, that was a great response. And uh, so many questions because of that. Um, how do you hire for shared values or value-based individuals? Is it easier because it's a nonprofit? And I don't want to say that. I, I say that That's reluctantly okay. because, you know, yeah. easier is, is kind of an ugly term. But is it easier because it's a nonprofit and therefore they're there and, and there's a shared mission? There's, there's this approach to helping the families with undergoing a cancer experience or cancer journey? Or do you have a series of questions that you ask when you're hiring? So we have a process that we've developed over the years. We've had pretty good success in hiring people. Not perfect, but pretty good. And part of it is we, we usually do best when people come from within our own network. So our first employee actually came, she was the daughter of one of the families we helped. And she sought us out, we connected, she was great. 
Then our first intern who's still with us now as an employee was her good friend from where they were waitressing together and they went to school together. And then our next employee was her friend who volunteered for us at events. And then one of our employees was a hockey parent with my wife and I and our kids. And then another employee worked a camp with one of our former. So I think that when you cast a wide net and you have a, we, we work really hard on our network. I work really hard on my personal network, much like I'm sure you do. And when you work really hard and you try to bring value into that network, we go out to that network a lot and say, hey, we need, this is who we're looking for. Here's the job description. And we have a great HR partner, the O'Connor Group, and they help us move down that ramp because that is one of my least favorite things to do is interview new people. I, I don't, it's like, it's like first dates. Everybody's <laughs> on their best behavior. Everybody eats a salad, right? Nobody drinks too much beer. Right. So, um, I think when we interview people, we, we try to put them in position and help them see what we see every day from our point of view. How would you handle that? This is what we do. These are our values. This has to be important to you. If it's not, it's okay. But this is what's important here. And then we've in the past um, had people uh, put together a 30, 60, 90 day plan for when they started, you know. And then once we get them hired, we, we've struggled, but we're better on the orientation because we're a small company. It's like, hey, here's your first day. Here's a care package. We're going to lunch. Go get them, <laughs> you know, and then, and then you look at them in like 25 days and they're like, where's the coffee? Yeah. So we've, we've really walked back our orientation process. That's become a lot better. Again, not me, we, but my team. So, and then I think it's, we, we try to add a ton of communication and a ton of open door. Like if, if you're working directly for the director of development, you can still come to me with a question if, if he's not around or if you're working for our family uh, office and Amy's not there, you can come to somebody else because we all got to be able to answer the phone. And I think there's, there's job descriptions, but everybody empties his trash. You know, everybody, you know, cleans up after lunch, you know, it's that kind of group. It's like a big family. I, I kind of like to think of it as a serious short house. You know, there's a lot of people there. If, if not everybody helps, it could get really bad and, yeah. and great friendships go poorly. So we just try to put that family first. What do we need to do? How can we need to jump in? And we really, we really value that person that will jump in no matter what. Our newest employee, um, actually, we, we have two new ones, Kate and Denise. They're both like that. What do you need me to do? Even if it's not their job, they're in. They're just in. And you feel that support. I think that's really important. That's great. I think uh, there's an interesting thing to discuss there as well. That is, you and I, when we first met and we talked on the phone, this is our first face to face. This is our first face to face virtually. Yeah. yeah. Myself and a, a couple of friends, we did come to your recent golf outing a, oh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, tee it up oh, for yeah. Teal, right? Yeah. You, uh, you should have came up because I would have loved to have taken 10 minutes out of 
playing I, the I had game asked, of golf. I, was I knew in. you were running around and doing ah, your thing, no. and and uh, um, but we didn't want to interrupt, and we had a blast. It was amazing. Good. Downingtown Country Club was yeah. fantastic, and uh, it was a great event. It was a lot of fun. Our, uh, one of our board members, Alicia Delario, and her husband Angelo and Les Mills, and our our colleague Paige Lasik. It's just, it, I actually play golf with my son Christopher, my buddy from home, and my college buddy. So. I would have loved to have seen you, but I'm, I appreciate you playing in it. No, How'd yeah, you do it's it? great. Uh, we shot collectively. It was a scramble, obviously. So um, we shot five under for the day. I don't so. think we did that. <laughs> Not too bad. We didn't do that. And I got a one on that one hole. Oh, where you could you know, pick the, the ball, the, the ball. <laughs> we like, we like double Eagle, the one hole and we still, I don't think we we're minus three. That's how bad we well, were. It was, I, I think when we went into the clubhouse as a quick sidebar, uh, my buddy was saying, you know, there's no way our scores even in contention because it's a, it's a scramble and, and yeah. you had to pick the ball and you had all these other uh, fun games that you could play. And I think the best score at the time was an, uh, 15 under. So yeah, yeah, we were nowhere, nowhere near. <laughs> there's some, there's some good golfers. Yeah. We actually have our big golf outing. If you want to play, it's a Philly cricket. It's a little bit more money. It's, that's it's, this one uh, in, in, uh, just yeah, after uh, Labor Day, right? Yeah. Tuesday. So call me after this and you know, so cool. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. No, didn't no mean, problem at all. So yeah, no, it's okay. So what we were discussing though, on the phone was you had mentioned to me and we, we had gotten off on a tangent as both of us love to talk. Uh, <laughs> but you had asked me, about you, you mentioned that you're very curious about what other nonprofits are doing, good or yes. bad. But yes. generally speaking, you do like to hear where some others are, are maybe mm -hmm. you know missing the mark a little bit. And I won't mention any names or anything like That's that, okay. of course, to protect the innocent. But I think what we were getting at was that um, organizations that, in a crisis especially, focus inwardly. Right? How can mm -hmm. we? raise more money. And don't get me wrong, especially in the nonprofit space, they're always passionate about their mission and about serving their stakeholders and all those things. I'm not being critical in that sense. But I think the messaging coming from yourself and from your team is an outwardly focused, the families first, everything else second. Yep. And in a crisis, especially when times are rough, organizations tend to go into damage control. And if your damage control is internal, how do we survive? How do we bring in more donor dollars? How do we, you, I think this is completely my hypothesis. Sure. You lose your focus on adding value outwardly to your mm -hmm. stakeholders and, and stakeholders, meaning the community that you serve and then also your donors and all of those things, right? So do you, do you think that's part of it? Is that part of why you've continued to build and, and grow your donor contributions even now in a time of crisis when other nonprofits are, are struggling a bit? Or do you think there's something else or is it a mix? So I think it's a mix. So I think, first of all, that's a really good observation. I would just add to that saying that you got to focus outwardly, but you've got to balance that with being respect responsible internally. So it's, we have to make sure that, you know, we're tight and squared away inside to be able to go out and be outwardly focused on our families. Good point. Because the priority of the family is still inward too, because when we say, Hey, we want to do this project, not that this is a project we're going to do, but let's say we wanted to redo the kitchen in the office. 
And well, okay, but that's going to cost 10 grand. That's 10 grand away from families. We can't do that because we need that 10 grand to go outward, right? So I think that's one of the things. And I think just for speaking for on our behalf as an organization, uh, our director or our uh, digital media communi- digital communications coordinator, Molly, put together a great outward uh, campaign post when everything started going down that raised a really fair amount of money electronically. And the message was compelling. What she did was great. And the work that we've done as an organization, or I'd like to believe this is why, of doing what we say we're going to do, helping who we're going to say we're going to do, and communicating that back, you need that in order to leverage it. So a lot of organizations who might, you just can't do it now. You got to do the right thing as best you can, knowing that the world's not perfect. And, you know, but you got to really do your best to do the right thing and pick the right horse and work as hard as you can for what your passion and what your mission is. Then when things get off the rails a little bit, that's like money in the bank that you just have to deploy the right way. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Build it, building up that relationship capital, so to speak, and that yeah. trust capital. And that's why integrity is our number one value, not families. It's our number one priority, but our value is integrity because without integrity, especially as a nonprofit, you can't do anything. If any of your donors doubt that we're going to take dollar one, give to that family, then we're done. You have to every day get out of bed. And we, I've said no to money. I've had a guy, I'll never forget this. He was a, he's a really nice guy. And we had just met and he, he really connected with our mission. And he goes, let's go to lunch. So we get in this car and we go to lunch. And we're driving around and we go to lunch. And afterwards, and he goes, I really love him. He drives me to his house. And he goes, stay here. I'm like, all right. Fun, like energetic guy. And I'm sitting there and he comes out and he has a bag, brown paper bag. And he goes, here you go. I go, what is it? He goes, $25,000. Cash. <laughs> cash. Or maybe, maybe it was, it was, it was pretty close to $25,000. And I go, wow. Um, I'm going to call my lawyer because I don't want to jam anybody up. So I call my attorney. I go, hey, here's where I am. Here's what's happening. This guy just gave me 25 grand in the bag. My lawyer said, give it back to him. Here's why. And then, and then tell them this is the way it has to, the best way to do it. So I said, Hey, this is, I want to take this money. Like the, the CEO, Paul, for bringing hope home wants to take this money. We could do a lot of good, but if I do, then I got to report it and I got to use your name. And I don't think that's the right thing. And I just want you to know, he was a little offended, but it was the right thing to do. Not always the easiest thing to do. But those kind of things are times where you do the right thing and other things take care of themselves. Right. That's a good point. You know? And a lot of times doing the right, and, and by the way, I screw up all the time, but do, doing the right thing saves you from having to clean it up a lot of messes. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And if we do make mistakes, which we've had, which we have in the past, and we'll probably continue to, we just try to own them and say, you know what, this is, this is what happened. This is why it happened. This is what we were thinking. 
and we're sorry, and here's how we're going to fix it, or here's why it's never going to happen again. And people don't have to forgive you. So, Accountability, which is part of that whole integrity, value-based and value-focused organization, I think is, is also a good point. It's a, it's a huge part of the reason that bringing hope home is successful, I think, is that focus. Good and, and advice think, for everybody these days. Yeah, and I think that goes back to how we hire for culture. If, if, like I've told our team, if you can't trust me, you can't work here. If I can't trust you, we can't work together. It's just not going to happen. And it should happen. And I want to go to my team's weddings and I want to know their kids and their families. And I want to know them and I want to learn from them and I want to grow with them. And I want them all to stay with us forever. But it all starts with that. Can I work with this person? Can we work together on a shared goal? Can we have a beer together and enjoy it? Because, you know, very rarely are people's jobs life and death. There are some people that are, do great work at life and death. That's not what we do. You know, it's important. It's important to the families we help. It's important to our team. But I want to do it the right way and I want to have fun because life's short. You know, like next week, September already. Yeah. It's this year really? has been completely bananas for sure. Crazy. Um, yeah, crazy. Just completely. All right. So you talked a little bit about Molly. Your, um, she was director of communications, digital communications coordinator. Yep. Does all our social media and all our electronic, uh, blast emails and stuff. So Molly, the digital communications coordinator, Yes. the post that she made during COVID-19, what, how was the messaging shaped? Because I think that might be helpful to some people who are listening, regardless of the space that they're in. You don't have to know it verbatim, but more or less. Well, that's good. Um, (laughs) I would tell you. Um, and I told this to Molly, it was a little stronger than I was comfortable with initially. And I, she was right. And I was wrong. And I think that the reason that it worked was she was honest. She stated the problem. Hey, COVID 19s hit places are shutting down. Our families are more vulnerable than ever than anyone because they're already in a rough place. They still got to go in and out of the hospital. This is this is in the early part of it. And she drove it home. She was candid. And then she did the ask. And actually, I think it actually came from me, but she wrote it. Right. Of course. You know, yeah. right. But so what was what was great about it was she stuck to her guns, which I appreciated. And she worked with our director of development and it was, it was great. I think back to the honesty and nobody could argue that what she said was, was false. Nobody could say that's not right. And and she didn't ask. And at the end of the day, it's, it's other people's money. And if anybody decides to spend a dollar with you or somebody else, it's up to them. So you have to just make the ask. Well, I think a lot of that comes from her being able to stick to her guns comes from the integrity and the trust that you've built over time. Right. And like you said, giving your team the ability to say, just because I'm CEO doesn't mean you shouldn't shut me down every once in a while. If you think I'm wrong, tell me why I'm wrong. And let's look at this thing from different angles and figure out whether or not it is, in fact, a good opportunity for us. Right. And I I think that's what leads to pretty cool things happening. 
I'd, I'd like to think so. And, and one of the things that I didn't mention is if we at, as a team ever disagree, like if, if Molly and I disagreed and we couldn't come to a resolution, we can sit privately. And the rule is, let's talk about it. It has to be respectful and it has to be for the benefit of our priorities, family first, donor second, us third. And if we still disagree, it is the CEO's job to make that decision. Doesn't mean that your way is bad. It just means that because of some things that I might be looking at differently, this is a better plan. And the other person, or if the other person's right, then I have to be able to say, okay, we're going to do this, even though I don't agree, but I'm going to support it in public. And I'm going to be a good soldier because I have to be supportive of the team and the organization. So nobody's allowed to leave, you know, pouting and, and nobody does. Nobody does. But I think you have to have that open discourse. I think you have to have that ability to be uncomfortable with each other as long as it's for the right reasons. Because you never know, like you and I might be having a discussion about A, B, and C, and I'm saying we need to do F and G. And you say, you know what? No. And I say, well, I see why you want to do that, but this is why I want to do G. And then maybe we walk away going B, C, D, and G. Maybe that's what's better. It doesn't have to be you want or I want. It has to be, do the families win? Can we help more families? Can the donors feel better? Can we live with it? Uh, okay. How do we do it? You can, like I said, it's not, you know, I, it's not hard to, figure out a way to do it if you're all on the same page on why you want to do it. I, my wife, if she were here, probably start laughing because <laughs> I tend to dig my heels in at home a little bit. But, but no, well, you, I can't, can't, you can't do it at work, so you got to do it at home, right? Maybe that's why. <laughs> maybe that's why. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that's really applicable in general to a lot of our thinking as a society and a lot of our culture here, our Western culture. I'll include the Europeans in this, but I think often people get stuck in hyper focus on one detail, right? I have one objective and this is why I think it's right in, in our culture. And I think your approach is brilliant in the sense that it's focused on the bigger picture, right? And not about the individual and more so about let's discuss. And as you said, maybe there are ways to take elements from different options to achieve our mutual goal. And uh, the attorney side of my brain is sort of flickering a little bit because as an attorney, I personally approach my clients' issues like that. I, I, I actually learned from another attorney that I worked for uh, several years ago, Tom Spadia. Uh, one of the things that I learned with him was he often said, if you don't, if your client is trying to achieve a particular goal, like let's say closing a deal or um, starting a franchise, whatever it is, and you don't help them achieve that goal because of legal issues or risks or whatever, then have you really served your client? And the answer is technically no. Yes, you've helped them avoid a risk, but if if you didn't provide them with a potential solution or at least try to help them get to the goal in an effective way, and all you did was provide risks and issues and problems, 
you haven't really fulfilled your full duty and responsibility. And I think a lot of what you're saying is related to that as well is don't stay hyper-focused on this one thing, right? This is the one thing I'm passionate about. We must do this or all bets are off. There, there are creative ways to look at problems when you have two people discussing a potential outcome and are there mutual ways to achieve that goal? And that's often the, the best way yeah. to negotiate. Or, and do you take word to build on that? Do you go outside to a third party that you both respect and say, not to mediate it, but just say, you know what? Tony's saying this and I'm thinking this, what am I missing? Why am I not seeing what Tony's seeing? That's a great point. Why is he not picking up what I'm putting down over here? Because we're, we're both smart. Tony told me I was brilliant. So how hard <laughs> it shouldn't be that hard. And the other person might say, well, Paul, think about it from Tony's perspective. This is Tony's background. He's an attorney. He's going to look at it. I'm a sales guy by training, right? So I'm definitely not an attorney, <laughs> right? So sometimes we, we, we call in a, a disinterested third party who gets us, who knows us, who we say, help me connect the dots, you know? and and. I think you pick up a lot of credibility because I think it shows that you're valuing the other person, right? And like I said, I, I'm not a relationship counselor because anybody who knows me knows I could be a pain. But if, if you try and you go in with true, true, candid authenticity about, hey, I want to understand what you're thinking or how you're seeing it, can you let me know? Then. That's 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 a good starting point. You still might not get there, but anyway. No, yeah, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. So my last question is more so just focused about a positive story or experience, or if you want to give multiple, that's fine. Sure. From bringing hope home, what is your favorite in your 12 years of working mm. as CEO for bringing hope home? What's your favorite story of helping out another family? that your, your organization was serving? I have a lot of those. Um, I will tell you one that sticks out. I live in a great town, uh, media PA. And some of the things what I love is when I run into somebody who's wearing one of our shirts or, or, or his kid was in our school thing, but I was at a, uh, restaurant, uh, getting a cup of coffee and I was talking to the lady who I always waits on me and it's like a really cool place. I don't want to say it because I don't want to embarrass her, but it's a great place. And I walked, I had been going there forever and I usually always wear like bringing hope home swag. Um, but I guess I hadn't been when I was stopping by there. And one day I go and I was out working out. And I had like a bring hope home t-shirt and gym shorts on. And I go by and we're like, Hey, how you doing? And she goes, how do you know that place? I go, what place? She goes, Oh, bring hope home. I go, Oh, I, I work there. I'm, you know, one, I'm one of the guys that started it. She got all teary. Now I'm getting, I'm getting emotional. She got all teary and she's like, you guys helped me. She had just lost her husband like the year before. And she goes, you guys helped me. You guys did this, this, this. Took care of us at Christmas, and you did this, and I don't know where I would have been without you. And thank you. And what really struck me was what she said we did to her and for her was what I want people to know what we do. 
Like if I had written out my wishes for someone to know about us, she articulated them with such beauty and, and grace and, and generosity of spirit that it, it made me know that I'm, we're doing what God wants us to do. And I'm in the place God wants me to be. I get to, I get that a lot. I'm very blessed that way. So. It's a wonderful story, Paul. Thank you so much. Thanks for letting me say Thank it. you for your time. Now, if people want to donate to Bringing Hope Home, they can go to bringinghopehome.org. Are there other ways to reach out to you or to support the organization? So they go to bringinghopehome.org. They can sign up for a monthly donorship, a corporate donorship. They can be involved in a golf outing or any of our events. They can uh, reach out to me on the website through email. They can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, um, LinkedIn, Facebook, and me as well. Um, BHH Philly, Bringing Hope Home are our handles. And if they want to get involved, let us know. Awesome. Paul, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, you, buddy. A a great episode. Fantastic. It was great. Thank you for your energy, man. It's been great. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Sounds good. All right. See you. See you, Paul. Bye.